This morning, I want to read in a moment and have us read together from the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke is a beautifully written history of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, his ministry, all that he did. It's more than a history. It's also Luke's showing to us who this Jesus was and is so that we might believe. There's an evangelistic appeal in the Gospel of Luke as in all of the Gospels. These aren't just facts. He wanted you, he wanted us to believe. And in his Gospel is continually threaded this story of how Jesus claimed authority, authority over all things, how God the Father had given him authority to preach and to teach and to do and to heal, and that indeed he spoke for God. In Luke chapter 9, which we'll read in a moment, we'll see more evidence of this authority that he was given and this authority that he distributed to the disciples. But in chapter 8, right prior to this uh, chapter 9, of course, There's one miracle after another, including miracles over nature. There are exorcisms. There are healings. Chapter 8 ends with the resuscitation of a 12-year-old girl literally brought back from the dead. Luke is telling us this Jesus has delegated power from God on high, and this Jesus is the ruler of all things. God has control of everything. He is God in the flesh. And we'll see in chapter 9 that he is not a one-man band, but that he too deeply desired to delegate power to his disciples and even beyond, to delegate a power, to delegate authority, to accomplish the mission of God in our broken world. Let's look at Luke chapter 9. And let's read this responsively. It'll appear on the screens. I'll begin, and if you'll read the next verse, we'll do this sequentially um, from Luke 9, 1. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. He told them, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Then 
He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go buy food for all this crowd. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The word of the Lord. Back in Luke chapter 5, there was a calling of disciples. Now as we progress through the gospel of Luke, Jesus is authorizing these 12 men, now who were authorized to heal, to feed the hungry, to cast out demons, and to proclaim and preach the kingdom of God. Jesus gave away his authority to these men and then to countless men and women later whom we will see in the next couple of weeks. It's an amazing and atypical thing for a great leader to give away authority to other people, let alone to give away authority and power to other people. It's not uncommon for a great leader to give away instruction to other people. But to actually give away authority and power was something highly unusual. And it's not something we typically see in our world. I'm new to Chicago, but I've always been a fan of the Chicago Bulls. I should mention the Blackhawks, too, probably at this point. But I've always been a fan of Michael Jordan. Who wasn't? Who ever played basketball? Michael Jordan was a, a deadly shooter. Michael Jordan was a profoundly gifted athlete. When a three-point shot was needed at the end of the game, Michael Jordan was able to do it almost whenever he wanted to. Michael Jordan's job was winning basketball games, and he did a great job of doing that. But Michael Jordan never delegated his skills to the rest of the NBA, never even thought about it. He never spent his time going to other teams' practices to help their shooters become better so they could beat him. It would have been unthinkable, and he didn't do it. Or imagine if there were an American politician who, after getting the news of a very positive polling result, said to his team, you know, I'm way ahead. I kind of feel sorry for the other person. Let's take all our excess campaign contributions and let's give it to the other guy So we can make this competitive and we can have a fair contest and maybe give them a fighting chance. No Olympic swimmer ever standing on the blocks ready for the 100-meter swim and the Olympic Games. No swimmer ever said to the woman next to her, you know, I know you've been swimming sort of slowly lately, and I feel badly about that. And I'm really doing extremely well. I'll probably win this race. So when the gun goes off, you go ahead. 
I'm going to stay here for a few extra seconds, and we'll just try to make this thing even. People don't do that, and we shouldn't. Jesus, though, took the power given to him as derived authority and power from the Heavenly Father and then said to these 12, I want you to do something extraordinary. I want you to go and do what I have already been doing. You are deputized to do that. Jesus delegated power. First to the 12, later to other people. And now we're a part of a church, both globally and this one locally, where power is delegated. We give one another permission to do what Jesus did, to be the hands and feet in Jesus, to do ministry in our broken world. We are all delegated to do that. It's a very egalitarian model that we can go and be the hands and feet of Jesus. Today, we're going to launch a a short series on the fifth of Christ Church's strategic goals. Maybe you remember our strategic goals. Likely, you don't. But I think it's good to review them because in the course of the past year, Dan Meyer has been primarily the preacher who has wonderfully listed and, and elucidated our remarkable goals for ministry of this place. So just as a refresher, here they are. Our first goal is that our church would be full of people who are growing healthy souls and relationships. That's where all of this begins, in a relationship with Jesus Christ in which we are meeting with him. We are communing with him. Our souls are growing ever more healthy, and our relationships with one another are also growing more healthy. This is a firsthand spirituality. It's not a borrowing of spirituality from someone else. It's claiming this for ourselves, and it's relating to God in a personal way. Our second goal is to love people as Christ does. The gospel writer of the Gospel of John and the letters of John said, God is love. If we're not about love, then nothing else that we do matters. And for a church to be a loving church, particularly in our modern era, where many people's critique of the church is that we, we speak more often about what we're against than what we're for. What the Gospels tell us is that we are for the gospel of love. We are about loving people. Our third goal is to serve people near us, the needy people around us. Often the people around us don't present as needy people, but they're deeply hurting inside, and they need the grace of God. Our fourth goal is to open doors to welcoming other people. This is one of the goals where I personally, in the brief time that I've been here, have been able to see this remarkable, tangible progress in meeting goal number four because I'm telling you, when you come in this place, you know, you have to fight to not be welcomed when you come into this church. You've got to hide because we're, we are becoming ever more a welcoming church, and that is a good and wonderful thing. Today, I want to talk briefly about our fifth strategic goal, which is multiplying leaders for ministry and mission. Multiplying leaders 
for ministry and mission. And we can't go any further unless I tell you all of you are what's in the target zone for this goal. Multiplying leaders is not cloning Dan Meyer, as good for the kingdom of God as that would be. But that isn't happening. Dan Meyer equips, releases authority and power to others of us, ever more of us, so that we might be equipped to serve in the name of Christ to our broken world. How do we do this? Well, this is one of the curious things about the passage we've read together, and frankly, one that is puzzling to me. In Luke 9, 3, Jesus said, Take nothing for the journey. No bread, no money. If you go to a place and they don't want to hear what you have to say, shake the dust off your feet and move on. Really? You know, I'm, I'm a minister of the gospel. They ordained me for this work. They provided a pension fund for me. I like having a little bit of money in my pocket when I go out each day. Does Jesus really say, take nothing for the journey, no bread, no money? Can we do this work in that much of a minimalist way? What's he saying? Well, it's answering that question and getting at the heart of it that we most want to do in our remaining time. The bottom irreducible line of this is that Jesus wants laborers for the harvest. Jesus wants laborers for the harvest. There are countless people, both then, there were countless people. There still are countless people all around us who would be in this church this morning if they were only asked. Countless people would come. And not just to this church, but to churches all over. But we don't ask them to come. By the way, we have our new new members here. Congratulations to you. We're delighted that you're with us. I suppose there was a time when you were church shopping and you landed here. Probably among us here are other church shoppers. Probably a great many of us have at some time in our life church shopped. And let me just tell you, I'm glad you survived it because it's one of the most miserable experiences in the world. (laughs) When you go to a church that's not yours, when you're church shopping, you feel like you've landed in someone else's family reunion. And one of two things typically happens. Hopefully it didn't happen to you. One thing is that you're completely ignored, totally ignored. And the other thing is that you're smothered. Uh, that, that, oh my goodness, a new person's here, and suddenly you have 20 people around you. People, people really can get through that experience. People want to come to church when they know what church offers them. We need leaders, all of us, who will be inviters. But we also need leaders, all of us, who will involve themselves in our mission projects. We need leaders who will teach in the walls of this church and teach small groups and lead them. We need stewards, as Deborah has referred to. We need stewards who take as their joyful and cheerful task the giving of themselves and their resources to the work of God in this place. We need musicians. We need lots of things. In verse 12 of this text, another curious thing happens. And I fully understand this because it's exactly what I would have done had I been one of the disciples. Here are thousands of people 
They're hungry. They have no place to stay. Jesus has delegated the task to these people to figure this thing out. Jesus said to them, eventually, he says to them, you feed them. But it's after the disciples said, Lord, surely, surely the buffet at the Holiday Inn Galilee is available to these folks. Surely there's a convenience store somewhere. And Jesus looks back at the disciples and says, no, you give them something to eat. That's your job to do. And it's our job to feed the people around us in, in today's church as well. In our year here, Laurie and I have so enjoyed this good and gracious church. It's a wonderful place. It's a place with good plans and good ministry and good policies. There's, there's so much going on here that's so good. And frankly, being mostly a type A personality, there's a great appeal to me when things are highly ordered, they run on time, and they run well. I like plans. I like policies. But I'm here to tell you this morning that God cares less about our plans and our policies and our procedures than he does our actions on behalf of those people who need to hear the gospel. I got a good dose of this when we were raising our four children. And every year that we lived in Oklahoma, we would try to escape in the summer to go to Colorado for a week, week and a half, two weeks, whatever we could manage. So every year in the summer in Oklahoma, we would fill up our station wagon, and uh, we would haul the crew. That's not actually our station wagon. I'm not sure if ours looked better or worse than that one, but that's what we looked like. And so for any of you who have ever traveled like that as a child growing up or later with your own family or with friends or whatever, you can imagine what a type A personality goes through trying to get four kids in a car to travel 15 miles, 15 hours to Colorado every summer. It was the same routine over and over and over again. The night before, I would have the big pep talk with the kids. Kids, we're going to Colorado tomorrow. There would be muted cheers. Yay. Then I would say, tomorrow morning, we're leaving at 8 o'clock sharp. 8 o'clock sharp. Eyes rolling so that they couldn't be seen. And guys, we're going to have a great time. It's 15 hours, but the good news is we're only going to try to do 10 tomorrow. We're stopping at a place. But if we leave on time, if we leave on time, we are going to be able to see just after lunch that historical marker on the side of the road where the Santa Fe Trail went through. And I try to excite them about all of this, and there is no sense of shared excitement. Um, you've been there. You've, you've seen this. And so 8 o'clock in the morning comes. Laurie and I are ready. Nobody's even up yet. Nobody's even stirring. 9 o'clock. A couple have stirred. 10 o'clock, a couple more have packed. At about 11.30, we take off for Colorado. We drive 15 miles. The first question is always, how much longer to Colorado? 15 more miles. The second question is inevitably, when are we going to stop for the bathroom? You know the questions that come. That's the nature of family travel. 
Meanwhile, Mr. Type A is all knotted up because we're going to miss the great historical marker (laughs) that we've seen three summers in a row, and no one enjoyed it then, and no one will enjoy it this time. (laughs) We've missed lunch at the place that I knew we just had to have lunch. No telling when we're going to finally get to our stop. It's going to be a long, long day. You know, the truth is, there are no perfect plans. As we work through strategic goal number five, we're still in the planning process. And someday we'll unveil some written plans that will be impressive and helpful and clear. But we're, frankly, still working all that out. What we need is to multiply ever more disciples who will go from this place to serve the manifold needs of people in our broken world. In World War II, General Douglas MacArthur asked an engineer, summoned him to his tent, how soon he could get a bridge across a certain river that was really needed for the troops to be able to advance. The engineer replied, that'll take about three days. Okay, the general said, draw up the plans. Three days later, the general asked for the plans. The engineer looked surprised, and he said, oh, general, must be some misunderstanding. The bridge is actually built. You can cross it now. If you want plans, that will take a little longer. One day, as God redeems this world and teaches the whirlwinds of our age how to dance, one day God will have revealed to us what He meant with all of the plans that He had for us. In Luke 9, all I know is He said, travel light, and worry less about the plans than about the actions. This beautiful but broken world needs the hands and feet of Jesus. Being the hands and feet of Jesus has been delegated to us, to all of us. In Luke 9, when the disciples said, who's going to feed all these people? Jesus could have done it all himself, but he looked at the disciples and he said, you feed them. You find them something to eat. And to the contemporary church at Christ Church at Oak Brook, he says the very same thing. Who's going to help all of these people? It's us together. Manifold, multiplied leaders for the goodness of the gospel doing the work of God in our midst. You feed them. Let's pray. Lord God, your ways are so amazing, so wondrous. At times they elude us, though. This teaching is clear. We are called to be about the business of the gospel, and we're called each of us to do it. This is our mission and our task. Give us the strength and the grace and the willingness to do just that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.